Revelation chapter 2 verse 1, this is the letter to the church at Ephesus. And this is what, this is what John writes. Chapter 2 verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, or your endurance, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered. And have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works. Or else, I will come to you quickly, and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Think, think just for a minute about institutions. And... For instance, I mean, one right now that's, you know, that we, it's in the news a lot and we, we probably dabble with just about every day. Think about Google. And, and when you think about Google and you do a Google search and you see that, you know, search up there and you see Google and all the stuff that they put up there and you hear about Google in the news and this and that. And it's easy to think of Google in the sense of thinking of, of an institution, in other words, Google's like this some something, and we either hate Google or we love Google, but rarely do we think about Google in terms of people, right? Well, guess what? In every institution, behind every institution, it all boils down to people. Think about a company. You may think about this company. Oh, I love this company, and this company is great. I mean, think about Chick-fil-A. Oh, we love Chick-fil-A. We're going to support Chick-fil-A. But it's, it's not that it's this great institution. What's behind Chick-fil-A? It's the people. Right? It's people who have beliefs. It's people who have worldviews. And at the end of the day, it's really, a not, it's really not about brick and mortar right, or some invisible internet entity, right? At the end of the day, it's about people. It's people that's behind this. That's why sometimes our politicians are so stupid. They, they talk about things like, you know, these, these institutions, and they go after these, these institutions and this and that, and it's like these corporations and this or that, and at the end of the day, it's, it's people. It's about people. If we're not careful, we think of the church the same way. When you think of church, you think institution. When you think of church, you think building. When you think of church, you think of, uh, you know, where is your church located? Well, my church, and we give a physical address, right? Uh, My church is down the street, go down the street, turn left, and it's that beautiful brick building right there. Now, in a sense, that's right. 
In a sense, we understand why we say that, right? I mean, really, it's where my church really meets, really. Because it's not the brick and mortar that's actually the church. Of all the words that the writers of the New Testament, of all the words that Luke, when he writes the book of Acts, of all the words at his disposal, when it comes to talk about the church and what he calls the church, he uses the word ekklesia. It's a Greek word that means a people. At the center of it, it's people, but not just any group of people, but it's people who have been called out. It's people who have been summoned. In the Greek world, it was used to political gatherings. People who were summoned, called out to some meeting for some purpose. And, and Luke will use that word in Acts, and it's picked up by other New Testament writers. And Jesus uses it here when he addresses the churches. He addresses the ecclesias. And when we understand the church in that, the very nature of the church, it's not just about buildings, it's not just some institution. But at the end of the day, the church is made up of people who have been called out of sin and called to faith and trust in Christ. That's the church. In other words, a very real sense, we are the church. We are it. Now, I start with that in this letter to the seven churches. Because if we're not, if we're not careful, we will tend to think, especially when we get into and see the problems and when we see Ephesus here, and we go, oh man, that church is in trouble. Yeah, it was in trouble. Some have said Ephesus was on the emergency room table. About to die. And it was. But if we're not careful, then we think of some institution that's dying. These are seven letters written to seven churches, and who makes up the churches? It's the people. These are letters to people, these are warnings to people, not just some institution. And if we don't get that at the start, then we'll read through chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation and we'll walk away and we'll go, gee, that Ephesus church, holy smoke, I'd never join that church. I have sometimes people say, they'll, they'll say, and I want to say this, I haven't found the nerve to say it yet, maybe one day I will, I don't know. But I have sometimes, you know, we talk with people and they're, they're saying, you know, we just, man, we're trying to find the perfect church. And I want to say sometimes, well, if you find it, don't join it. And I'm sure if I were to say that, then the response would be, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Well, you're thinking like on an institutional level here. And if you do find that perfect institution, don't join it because you're going to ruin it. Because you're not perfect. And the minute you attach yourself to it, it's no longer going to be perfect. I haven't found the nerve to say that yet. Uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe I would one day. But I want to say that sometimes. But isn't that the, sometimes the way we think of the church? We don't often think of people. But it, yet the New Testament, it's about people. And it's about people who have been called to faith to Christ and they've been called together to live out the gospel together in the context in which they, they live, in the place in which they live. They are to live out this gospel and, and try to live in a fallen world. And we're not perfect. We're not, 
We're not saying, oh my gosh, we're going to become a perfect church. We will one day when Christ comes back. But until then, we're not. I'll tell you what our goal needs to be. Our goal needs to be a true church. To be a true church. That should be our goal. Because if we seek after perfection, we set ourselves up for hypocrisy, don't we? And those outside the church throw rocks and say, you Christians are just the same. You're all just a bunch of hypocrites and the church is nothing but full of hypocrites and so forth. So we, we seek to be a true church. But nevertheless, what underlies this, what, what, what we need to see and understand as we enter into these letters, we're not talking about institutions here. We're talking about people because it's people that make up the church. So, in a very real sense, how goes the heart of the people, so goes the heart of the church. Right? For good or bad. If the heart of the people goes bad, then guess what happens to the heart of the church? It goes bad. If the heart of the people grows cold, guess what happens to the heart of the church? It grows cold. But just the reverse. Let one heart catch fire. And then let another heart catch fire. And let another heart catch fire. Guess what begins to happen to the heart of the church? It catches fire. You follow that? You see that? I mean, for good or bad, so goes our heart individually. As I am part of this church, so goes my heart. So goes the heart of this church. And we're in it together. We're in it together as individual believers and followers of Christ. So we need to understand that at the beginning as we begin to look at these churches. We're talking about letters that are written to churches, yes, but it's people who are in this particular location. They're called the church. And look, I get it. I understand why. Sometimes there's, there's appropriate use of talking about the church and saying, you know, the church in America and the church here. I, there's appropriate uses for that. But I don't want you to fall in, into the thinking that this is some sort of abstract institution here that we're talking about. We're talking about the hearts of people. That's what we're talking about. Now, Ephesus is in trouble. The church is at Ephesus is in trouble. And as I mentioned earlier, some have said Ephesus is, is like, it's like walking into the emergency room and there's Ephesus laying on the emergency room table in, in deep trouble here. There are some good things here. Jesus mentions some good things about this church. He mentions some things that, man, as I look at it, I go, man, I wish we could be doing this. And it's, it's, it's the way as you read through these letters, they're going to follow a similar pattern. They're generally going to open with Christ saying to the church, and he'll take some description of himself that we've already seen, particularly in verses 9 through 20, the very introduction of this, this first vision of the book of Revelation. He's going to take some description out of that, and he's going to say, this is the one who's writing to you. He's, he's going to generally give some good things about the church, and then he's going to generally give some bad things about the church. He's going to get to the issue that's involved in the church, and, and then there's going to be held out this promise. Usually a warning with a promise that if you'll turn, then here's some things that can happen. He's going to take characteristics of the churches. He's going to take characteristics of the cities in which they lived in, 
And, and he's going to show the real heart of the people. The real heart of the people that make up the church. Now, if you were to look at it structurally, Ephesus is the first church. Laodicea is the last. Those, the, the first and the last church are in severe trouble. What's interesting is the second and the sixth church, Smyrna and Philadelphia, he doesn't say anything bad about those churches. It's all good. And then you look at churches 3, 4, and 5. They're in the middle, and there's good and bad there. It's almost as if 1 and 7, man, those bookends, they're in trouble. And then you got two really gems. Man, these are just gems. These are just jewel of churches right there. And then in the middle, it's sort of like these churches are, are teetering. They can go either way. They can go good, or they can go bad. So as you look at the structure of the way that these these uh, letters to these churches. And Jesus knows these churches. He's going to say it the way that he puts it. I know you. It's in a perfect tense. And each one of them, it's in the perfect tense. So he knows completely. He knows perfectly. He knows these churches. So did John. In fact, Ephesus, John would have spent some time in Ephesus. John probably took up residence in Ephesus. John probably was arrested in Ephesus and sent to Patmos from Ephesus. So, not only Ephesus, but these other churches. John would have known these churches. As I mentioned before, this this is his stomping ground, so to speak. But Jesus knows these churches. He knows them perfectly. He knows our church. And the reason he knows our church is because he knows our hearts individually. And he knows our heart better than we know our heart in many ways. And sometimes that's a scary thing, right? Well, let me give you just a bit of background about Ephesus, so, so that, because so much about the cities in which these churches were located comes through in the good things that they had and sometimes the bad things that they had. Ephesus, think of Ephesus like New York City. Not on, not on the big scale like that. Ephesus at its height was only about a half a million people. At the time of John's writing, probably 200,000, 300,000. Ephesus was a, originally a seaport, but what would happen is it, the, the port, the river and the bay and so forth, it would get silted in. And they were constantly having to move Ephesus. And they just kept having to move it back because it would just, the, the port, the coast would get silted in and so forth. But Ephesus was like a New York City in its importance. It was not the capital of Asia Minor. Pergamon's the capital of Asia Minor. But Ephesus was an important city. It sat at a road, a major road, and when the Roman persecution of Christians, whenever they would move Christians from this area and move them to Rome to put them in places like, say, the Colosseum and have their fun with them and execute them, they would move them right through Ephesus. And this major highway, some started to call the Highway of Martyrs. Because the people of Ephesus would see these Christians sort of paraded through the city on their way to Rome and everybody knew it was about to happen. Everybody knew these Christians were going to be put to death. And the Romans did, especially Nero. Nero did some horrible things with these Christians. Got them to Rome and so forth. Some writers have said that Ephesus was the vanity fair of the ancient world. Now, if you know anything about vanity fair, it was this place, it was a very transient place. It's where people came, they would sell their goods and their wares, and and literally you could find anything, good or bad. 
So that's, that's kind of what the city of Ephesus was like. It was a major city. It was an important city. There was the temple to Diana or Artemis that was there. And it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It's a very religious city. Very religious city. It was a self-governed city, which was unusual for Rome. The governor of Rome lived there. Or the governor of this area lived in Ephesus. Let me read you what one... This is an Ephesian philosopher. Just to give you... Now, this is not some Christian, all right? This is not some, you know, what would be considered today some bigoted, intolerant, insensitive Christian writing about the people of Ephesus. This is one of their own philosophers. This is what he said. Heraclitus, he was no Christian, but he summed up the people of Ephesus like this. And remember, this is one of their own, all right? The people were fit only to be drowned. And that the reason why he could never laugh or smile was because he lived amidst such terrible uncleanness. Now, this is one of their own philosophers. So, you, you, you kind of start to get just maybe a little bit of a picture of what Ephesus might have been like. Again, just kind of picture in New York City. Transient, coming and going, important, a lot of trade, a lot of things going on, very religious. And the church must have, the church must have felt the effects of living in such a city. A lot of these Christians in this church... We know that in, at, at the day of Pentecost, there were visitors from Asia, so there must have been maybe some visitors from Ephesus who were at Pentecost on the day of Pentecost. They're converted. We look at Acts chapter 18. Paul rolls into Ephesus, preaches the gospel. Acts chapter 18, and then we get to Acts chapter 19. What we see formed there on Paul's second visit to Ephesus is the church is beginning to take shape. He stays there about two years. He teaches... He'll write a book to them while he's in prison somewhere in the early 60s. He'll write the book of Ephesians to them, giving them instructions and so forth. So it's not like this church just sort of popped up on the scene and had no, no teaching at all. Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. He spent a lot of time with these believers. He spent a lot of time with the elders of Ephesus. In fact, Acts chapter 20, when he is in Miletus and he's been run out of Ephesus because of a riot, he calls the elders of Ephesus, sits them down, and gives them instructions. So this was a church that had solid teaching. This was a, a church that was solid, solidly committed to the truth. They weren't some fly-by-night, some upspring, some new Christian group that's trying to form a church. They would have been there. And if you date the book of Revelation early, then you're probably talking maybe 10 to 20 years after Paul and after all this happens that Christ sends this letter. If it's a later date, then, then you're looking at maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 years. So we're not talking about hundreds of years in which this church, all of a sudden, Jesus says, you left your first love. We're talking, relatively speaking, we're talking about, you know, anywhere from a 10 to 30 to maybe 40 year period that this church is told, you left your first love. I don't know about you, but that scares me to death for our church. You understand that? We're only one generation from losing it. 
one generation. If we fail to pass on, just like what Paul was doing, just like what the apostles were doing, and we fail to pass on not just the truth of God's Word, but the problem here was love. That was the problem here. Well, there's three things that Jesus says to this church. There's three things here. And again, I want you to keep it in the back of your mind. And I want you to think institution. I want you to think people here. I want you to think about people. The first thing that he says, he, he talks about the good. And I sort of outlined this, you know, the good, because it just kind of naturally flows out of the text. The good, the bad. And oh, I wanted to do my best, Clint Eastwood, outline and go the ugly It just wasn't in the text. It just wasn't there. So it's the good, the bad, and then there's a promise. There's a promise. Well, he starts with the good in chapter 2, verse 1. He says to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write. Now, I think the angel's the pastor. I think the angel of these churches, when he writes to the, I think it's the elders. Now, I know angel... The word that's used here is, is not used of, it's used of angels, and it's, it's, it's not used of human uh, messengers. But I, I, to me, it just fits the, it, it, I don't think it's the spirit of the church here. It just seems to fit the context, the feel, the flow. And as I mentioned last week, in looking at that first part of the introduction of Christ walking, holding these lampstands, holding these stars, walking amidst in the lampstands, the churches, holding these stars. It just seems to fit here that what he's doing is he's walking in the midst of his churches and what's in his hand, these stars that he identifies as the angels of the previous section. He's holding the elders. He's holding the leaders of the churches in his hand. To me, that's just a, a beautiful picture here. So to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write. It's a command. It's, it's not, hey, if you want to, if you got time. No, you need to write this. And remember in the passage last week, I want you to write it and I want you to send it. I don't want you to write it and keep it in some place. I want you to write it and I want you to send it out. People need to see it. People need to read it. And this is what he says. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. This comes directly out of the introduction to this vision. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. So at the time that he's saying this, this is the way it's constructed in the Greek, at the time that he's saying this, at that very same moment, he's walking among the churches and he's got these stars in his hands. And this is what he says in verse 2. I know your works. I know your works. The verb here is in the perfect tense, which means it's a, it's a complete knowledge. It's, it's not like I might know, I have an idea. No, he's saying I know completely your works. Not only your works, but I know your labor. I know your labor. Not only that, I know your patience. I know your endurance. You have endured, you have been patient. And the Ephesians did. They put up with a lot. Just again, try to, try to imagine being being a group of believers trying to live out your life and live out the gospel and trying to be a true church in the midst of New York City. 
Can you imagine? Now, there are believers there and there are true churches there. They are there and they're living the gospel every day. And so, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your patience, your endurance. And I know that you cannot bear those who are evil. There would have been a bunch. This was a transient situation. So there would have been people who passed through Ephesus all the time. And there were probably those who would stroll through there with the latest philosophy, the latest ideas, and they would come through, gain, you know, gain a following, and then fall off, and then here come the latest flavor and so forth. So you just imagine this going on and on, and all sorts of evil. Look, the Roman world was evil. They practiced evil. They did some evil stuff. We didn't invent evil. They did some things that in some ways would make some of what we see as evil blush today. They would have seen it all. They would have been exposed to it all. And I know you can't bear with that. You don't, you don't go into that. You don't join that. You don't do that. Not only that, you don't allow it in the church because he says this, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. You guys, your truth, your orthodoxy is sterling. Your truth, your commitment to truth is unbelievable. You don't bear evil. You don't put up with it. And you test those who come through and claim they're the latest apostle from Jesus. You put them to the test. You don't just accept them. And you found them to be liars. And when you find them to be liars, you don't put up with them. You don't allow them to to stay there in the church and spread their lies and spread their error. And he says in verse 3, and you have persevered and have patience. You've persevered. You've had patience. And you've labored for my name's sake. You've not labored to build yourself a great name. You've not labored to have some big, huge building in Ephesus and have everybody go, look, look at the church, people. You've not labored to start some television ministry in Ephesus. You've been laboring for my name's sake, for the gospel, not for your own name, which is beautiful about these Ephesians. You've labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Man, you guys are plugging along. You guys are trudging along. You guys are sterling in your truth and your orthodoxy and you've got the truth sort of nailed down. You understand the gospel and you're not putting up with heresy. You're not putting up with false teaching. And that way you guys, you guys are doing great. Now, I would love him to say that about us. Wouldn't you? I would love Jesus to say about us here. You know, you guys, you guys are holding to the truth. You're holding to the gospel. You're you're enduring. I know it's tough and I know where you are and I know the culture in which you are trying to hold to this truth and I know the pressures and I know the, the, the temptations to cave and to do this and this, but you guys are persevering you got patience, and you're doing it for my name's sake. We're not doing it to build us a great name. We're not. We're doing it because we love the truth of God. You've not become weary. But then here comes the bad, verse 4. Nevertheless, 
I have this against you. Now that would send chills down my spine to have our Lord say openly, I have this against you. Now I might on a daily basis, and I think as, as I try to spend some time and try to spend some time in God's Word and trying to know Him each day better and better, I may have an inkling and I may have an idea that He probably has this against me. But I promise you this, if I were in my living room early in the wee hours of the morning and Christ said to me, I have this against you. It would send chills down my spine. My Lord has this against me. What is it, Lord? What is it? I've got to know. What is it? And he says, he tells them this. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The issue is not truth with you. The issue is love. You've left your first love. Now, I think obviously in context here, I think, it, I think you see very clearly that what he's talking about is this is Christ. You have left your first love. What would have been their first love? Their first love would have been Christ. It is a love for Christ. Now, I know some writers have said, well, it's, it may be their love for each other. I would argue this. You can't have love for each other if there's no love for Christ, right? So the first thing is there's got to be a love for Christ. And then flowing out of that is a love for other people. So, yeah, in a way they're together, but first, it's a love for Christ. So I think that's what, he, what he's saying. You've left your first love. I think what he's saying, in a sense, is you have left me. You believe everything right about me, but you've left me. Now, I want to come back to that, because I, I, I want to look at verse 5. He says, here's what you need to do. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Here's this extension, this offer of mercy and grace. Look, it's not over for you. You're in trouble. You're in big time trouble. But if you'll just remember from where you have fallen, remember where you were, and if you'll repent, if you'll turn from this and do the first works. You remember the first works? Man, when Paul was with them, man, they were great. In fact, Paul commends them in the, in the book of Ephesians. He talks about their faithfulness. He talks about their love. He talks about this. Guys, go back. Do the first words here. It was there. And also, I think they're, they're holding on. It's, it's still probably there. They're just holding on. Here's the other thing that's scary. They might not, not even realize they've left their first love. You know that? Do you know a church can go along and go along and get so busy and do all kinds of things? Even grow, have huge budgets, have great buildings, have wonderful music, and not even realize, not even realize they've abandoned their first love. Do you understand that? It can happen. They, they may not even have realized it. And it's the grace and mercy of Christ to come along and say, Stop! Stop! Let's get something right here. You've left your first love, which is me. And remember where you've fallen. Repent. Do the first works. 
Or here comes a warning, and this man, this is a scary warning, or else I will come to you, and I'm going to come quickly. I'm not going to fool around. I'm not going to wait around. It's going to come quickly. And I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What in the world is he saying? Some have said, well, Ephesus, remember I told you how Ephesus would get, the the harbor would get silted in and they'd have to move it and they'd have to move it and they'd have to move it. Some say, well, this must be a play on that, that what he's saying is, I'm just going to move you. You're no longer going to be in the place where you are and I'm just going to move you. It'd be like him coming to us and saying to us, Damascus Baptist Church, lest you repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to move you out of this area. I'm going to move you out of this area. I don't know, that's just not, that doesn't hit the force. That doesn't, that doesn't feel like the force of what he's saying. And understanding lampstand, being the church, I think what he's saying here is this, if you don't repent, I'm going to come unchurch you. I'm going to come remove that lampstand and you're not going to be my church. That has force. And again, I would say this, they could be unchurched and never even know they've been unchurched. They could carry on as business as usual. And the whole community would think, man, it's a great church. And yet they've been unchurched. Christ is gone. You remember my warning earlier? We're not talking hundreds of years. We're talking it can happen in one generation. And it could be gone. So there's the warning. And I think, it's a, I think it's a blunt, kind of in your face, between the eyes type of warning. And you better do this because I'm, I'll come quickly and I'll remove the lampstand from its place unless you repent. But then here comes this, this good. And, and it's almost as if, okay, you guys, you know, you're panicking here. But let me remind you this. You, you also, you have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't have a clue who these guys were. There's been all kinds of speculation. Were they followers of Nicholas, Nicholas, one of the deacons in Acts chapter 6? Did he go bad and a group follow him? I don't think. There's no evidence of that at all. Some have said, well, it's just a play on words that it's actually attached to Balaam, which is destroyer. The Nicolaitans here are are conquerors of people. And so it's a word play. It's really not a literal group of people. It's It's just a word play for a bad thing. I don't think that's it at all. I think it's probably some Nicholas we don't know about. We just don't know about it. But whatever he was, he wasn't good. And whatever he was, he must have been one of these traveling dudes coming through Ephesus, spouting the latest philosophy or claiming to be an apostle. And he was evidently so bad, Christ took notice of him and said, I hate his deeds as well. So he must have been a bad dude. And Jesus says, you hate it, you're doing good. Again, doctrinally, You guys are great. And then here comes this beautiful promise in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He'll say this to every church. And I think it opens this up to a broader audience. In other words, we need to hear this. We have ears to hear. Jesus used this, right? He who has an ear, let him hear. He's not talking about physically being able to hear. You hear my voice. You do. You hear my voice. My oldest son's here this morning, and I can remember a time when he stood as a young boy in church. You remember this? And he had heard me preach so much. I don't mean to embarrass you. But he stood up one Sunday in church and put his hands over his ears, just like this. You know, just in the middle of a sermon. And he said, 
Make him stop. (laughs) It hurt enough. So I'm not talking about the physical hearing here. I'm talking about spiritual understanding. That's Jesus' point. That's what the point is here. He who has an ear, he's talking about us. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Holy Spirit. To him who overcomes, I will give to him to eat the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. In other words, I think the long and short of it is, listen, you're going to have the full benefits of eternal life. The one overcoming, you're going to have it all. You're going to have the full benefits of eternal life. But guys, you've got to repent. You've got to repent. You've got to go back. You've got to do the first works. You've left your first love. Dead cold orthodoxy kills. And we've seen it time and time again with churches that fall into a dead cold orthodoxy. It kills. Look at Europe. Look at Europe. Look at what's beginning to happen and has been happening here. It kills. But listen, you got to remember this. You remember where I started? We're not talking about institutions here. We're talking about people. Who left their first love? Oh, the church at Ephesus. That bad church. That bad church. Man, we're not going to be like that. Who's the church? At the end of the day, who is it that left their first love? You see where I'm going? It was the people. The people left their first love. And as a result, Jesus addresses them as a group. And says, you as a group, you have left your first love. It's about individual hearts. Individual hearts grow cold, the church grows cold. But, if there's repentance... And individual hearts begin to awaken, revived. Then guess what happens to the heart of the church? How does this happen? It happens by the Spirit of God taking the Word of God and doing a work in our hearts. And when He begins to do that one by one, then guess what happens to the church? See, it's like a fire. It spreads. It's like a wildfire. It's individual hearts. And then the church... In 2 Kings chapter 18, there was a king in Judah named Hezekiah. Hezekiah becomes king, and it says this, and it catches my attention about Hezekiah, because it will say this about certain kings, and they did what was right in the sight of God, sight of the Lord. But it says this, it adds this about Hezekiah, and he followed the ways of his father David. It doesn't say that about every good king, it said it about Hezekiah. Hezekiah begins to to, to bring about reforms. He begins to take down the high places. Not every king took down the high places. Every good king. But he begins to do that. Hezekiah, though, he falls short. He he gets kind of swayed by some things. And his reforms don't fully come off. He doesn't finish it. And he dies. Then there's two bad kings. There's two really bad kings in Judah. And then there's a king, an eight-year-old boy who comes to power, who comes to the throne, and his name's Josiah. And Josiah 
It says the same thing that it said about Hezekiah. He was, he was a man, he was a, he was a king who loved God, he did what was right in the sight of God, and he followed the ways of his father David. And he began to institute reforms. And then one day, a priest comes to him and says, King Josiah, you won't believe what we found. And Josiah says, what did you find? And the, and, and, and the priest says, we found this book. And Josiah says, let me see it. He begins to open it and he reads it and he recognizes it for what it is. It's the law of Moses. It's the word of God. And Josiah's broken when he reads the word of God and he looks at the people and he sees just how far, how, how fall, how short they've fallen. And they read the book and they get into it and then all of a sudden what begins to happen is this, this, this great recovery of the truth that happens under Josiah. This great awakening. But it started one heart at a time as they heard the Word of God and the Spirit of God moved in one heart and collectively they began to say, well, this is what we've got to do. This is what we've got to do. And it happened. The Christian faith the gospel and understanding truth, the truth of the gospel. Christ died on a cross, was buried, raised the third day. And then we turn to him in, in, in repentance and faith. The truth of the gospel. There is truth there. It's there. But it doesn't lead me to an institutionalized faith. It leads me into a love relationship with Christ. I pray we can understand the difference. Because if all, of I, if all I think is that it leads me into this institutionalized relationship, then I come to church, I give my hour or couple hours a week, I give my money, I participate in communion, I do these things, and, and, and I'm, just, I'm just propping up the institution by my presence. But my heart is nowhere to be found. You left your first love. left it you know when Peter is confronted by Jesus and, he, and Jesus says to him do you love me and Peter says yeah I love you do you love me yeah I love you do you love me yeah come on you know I love you you remember the first thing that he said to him if you love me feed my sheep truth out of and surrounded by and in love for Christ. That's what we need. If we're going to survive this pagan culture, that's what we need. Orthodoxy, truth, yeah, but we can't leave our first love. So then the question is really this. It's not about just, hey man, what was wrong with Ephesus? Gee, that's a pretty bad church. Hey, what's wrong with Damascus? That's the wrong questions to be asking. The right question to ask is, have I left my first love? 
right? I mean, that's where I need to start. And I don't need to look and say, oh, hey, you know what? You left your first love. You, you did it. You've done it. You've left it. And I look at other people and say, oh, they obviously they left their first love. <laughs> wow, you see what they're doing? See what they said? They left their first love. Man, no, that's not where I start. I start with me. Have I left my first love? Have I? I don't know. I need to examine that every day. And then I need to ask another question here, and that question is this. Did I even have a first love to start with? Maybe I didn't leave anything. Maybe I never had it. You realize that's possible? Maybe you don't have it. What do you do? You repent. And you turn to Christ. And He will save you. And give you that first love. You want it? It's nothing like it. There it is. There He is. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. We try...